Good morning again. Again, my name is Mike Neglia, and uh, I am not Caleb, um, but I'm going to be filling the pulpit for him this morning. And so if um, we can just uh, have a brief word of prayer, not only for Caleb and Gideon, but for all those who are presently sick. It seems like the list is getting bigger and bigger, and so uh, the Lord knows who they are, and I would encourage everyone to reach out to people that aren't here and to see how they're doing and maybe uh, contact the deacons to see how best we can serve those who are unable to uh, take care of themselves right now. Heavenly Father, we come uh, to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. We come to you asking for your aid. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would please be with those that are ill. Father, I pray that your mercy would be on their bodies, that they would recover quickly. Lord, I pray that whatever is ailing them would be uh, mild. I pray, Lord, that um, at this time that they would draw closer to you, that you would increase their faith and trust in you. I pray that you would encourage them, Lord. I pray that you would give them grace to be able to uh, endure the discomfort that they're feeling. I pray that you preserve their lives, Lord. We know that your lives, um, our lives and their lives are in your hand. So, Father, I pray that you would be with them at this time. I pray that you would enable uh, your church to uh, take care of uh, each other and that you would uh, give us the ability to care for one another when we're ill. Again, Lord, we lift these things up to you, and we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. How did you get here? Have you ever wondered just how you wound up where you are in life, where you live, what you do for a living, whom you're married to? It's a cosmic question. How did I get here? How do seemingly random events and apparent free will decisions get us from point A to point B, or rather from point A to point Z, which stops at every letter in between? I've often pondered the what-ifs in my own life. In fact, the way past events can be traced to reveal causes of future events has always intrigued me. Think about it. How one single, seemingly insignificant event can drastically affect the course of our future. A missed train, a lost key, a canceled flight. Do you ever think, what if I hadn't missed that train? What if I never lost that key? What if I'd been able to take that flight? Well, this interest has led me to my, to my interest in time travel in literature and film. Now, let me explain. Specifically, traveling back in time in order to change the future has always piqued my interest. And what warning is given to all time travelers in the movies? Well, first, it's always don't run into your younger self or else the universe will explode or implode or something like that. But the second warning is always against tampering with the past because you may end up changing the future and never for the better. It usually goes something like this. Person A goes back in time. Person A saves person B from being killed. Person A then returns to his present time only to be shocked to see that the present isn't at all what he remembered it to be. He'd hoped that the world was going to be basically the same with the exception of person B being saved, but in reality, he had unwittingly altered the entire course of history. Person A, what have you done? Well, in the 1952 short story, A Sound of Thunder, by author Ray Bradbury, there's a group of men who travel back in time 66 million years, and they embark on a sort of Jurassic safari. They embark on a safari in order to hunt and kill a Tyrannosaurus rex, a T-Rex. Well, the safari tour guide warns the time travelers to stay on the floating path in order to not disrupt the primitive environment. 
Apparently, this dinosaur was supposed to die anyway that day, and the safari always traveled back to the same day, 66 million years ago, so the thought was killing the animal that day would not alter the future because it happened over and over again. Well, as the story goes, one of the time-traveling hunters gets startled and steps off the levitating bridge and into the brush. Upon returning to the present day, he notices some minor changes. For one, words are spelled differently. They're pronounced oddly, and people are acting strangely. The man also discovers that a recent presidential election has gone differently than he remembered it. And now a fascist president is in office. Nervously, the man looks down at his boots, the same boots he wore on a safari, and there he notices, encased in mud, stuck on the bottom of his boots, was a small crushed butterfly. You see, the man, when he stepped off the floating path, when he fell into the brush, he stepped on and killed this butterfly 66 million years ago. And its death apparently affected the course of history so much over millions and millions of years that the man's present reality was completely and utterly changed. This is a version of what's known as the butterfly effect. Basically, small actions may have large unintended consequences. Think of it this way, a butterfly's flapping wings creating a gentle wind on one side of the world, a wind that develops into a category five hurricane on the other side of the world. That's the butterfly effect. In both stories, we see the butterfly effect theory in action. Tiny, seemingly meaningless events can set a future on a trajectory, and any changes along the way can alter that trajectory, resulting in a vastly different future. Now, as Bible-believing Christians who serve a sovereign God, we know that, biblically speaking, time travel is baloney. It's nonsense. We know and serve a God who has ordered the end from the beginning. We have complete confidence that his purposes will stand. There's no way to travel back in time and change the past and alter the future. Even if you could get your hands on some pin particles or if you actually own a silver DeLorean, there's no way that it could happen in real life. So as interesting as I may find it, the time-traveling part of my introduction is purely fiction. The changing of the future is only fantasy. The future has been established by the Lord. Amen? However, the part that does ring true is the fact that the Lord, in accomplishing His will, uses means to arrive at His desired ends. He uses millions of them. In other words, the death of the butterfly would have needed to happen in order to bring about the next event and the next and the next and the next, leading up all the way to the very end, the end that God desired all along. In my life, there is clear evidence of this. Take my salvation as an example, which, by the way, is the most important event that can happen to any person. Amen? Let's go back in time just under 30 years ago. 29 years ago, in fact, to June 27, 1992, to my high school graduation. And we're going to quickly trace key events leading up to my standing here behind this stand, bringing this message to you this morning, November 28, 2021. And I'm going to frame it using terms like ifs and thens. Ifs and thens. For example, if not for this, then that would never have happened. So here we go. 1992, if Berklee College of Music didn't cost so darn much, then I wouldn't have had stayed in New York and gone to Queens College. And if I didn't have to stay in New York and go to Queens College, then I wouldn't have met a young man named Alec. 
And if I didn't meet a young man named Alec, then I wouldn't have heard the gospel. At the same time, if I didn't have to stay in New York, then I wouldn't have worked at a store called Wallbaums. Anybody remember Wallbaums in here? And if I didn't work at Wallbaums, then I wouldn't have met an old man named Paul. And if I didn't meet an old man named Paul, then I wouldn't have heard a second witness to the gospel. And if I didn't hear the gospel, then I wouldn't have been saved. And if I do not get saved, then I do not attend the Hicksville Christian Church. And if I don't attend the Hicksville Christian Church, then I don't encounter false teaching on demonology. Stick with me. If I don't encounter false teaching on demonology, then I don't read a letter from a man named Peter refuting said false teaching on demonology. And if I don't read a letter from a man named Peter refuting false teaching on demonology, then I don't explore the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And if I don't explore the doctrine of God's sovereignty, then I don't become a Calvinist. And if I don't become a Calvinist, then I don't leave the Hicksville Christian Church for the North Shore Baptist Church. And if I don't leave Hicksville Christian Church for North Shore Baptist Church, then I don't meet Heidi, my wife. And if I don't meet Heidi, my wife, then I'll never be happy. And she's not here to hear this. And if I don't join North Shore Baptist Church, then I don't meet Caleb Bunch or Steve Schultz. And if I don't meet Caleb Bunch and Steve Schultz, then I'm not sent out from North Shore to plant RGF. And if I'm not sent out to plant RGF, then I'm not with RGF to merge with Gateway Church. And if I'm not a member of Gateway, then I can't fill this pulpit for Caleb while he's sick today, November 28, 2021. You see, brothers and sisters, 30 years ago, my not being able to afford the high tuition of Berkeley College of Music set me on the course leading me right here today. And my lack of tuition money in 1992 can be traced back to my parents' financial hardships in the 80s, which in turn can be traced back to my dad losing his printing job to a computer in the 1970s, etc., etc., etc. There are millions more ifs and thens to my story, and I'm sure to your story as well. I'm sure when I was talking about my life, you were thinking about your own lives, and that was the point. So how did we get here? Now imagine for a minute that your name is Joseph, and your dad's name is Jacob. And you, as Joseph, are standing in front of your many brothers, and they are cowering before you in fear. Why? Because you are now the second command, second only to Pharaoh, the mighty king of Egypt. And as Joseph, you step back before speaking to them and ask yourself, how did I get here? You're about to calm their hearts by uttering the famous words of Genesis 50:20. You, my brothers, what you meant to me for evil, God, God meant it for good. You see, now you know that your brother's sinful acts were instrumental in God saving Israel from the seven-year famine. And we know the journey to Genesis 50:20 needed to start somewhere. And now we're going to go to that somewhere. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 39. As we quickly review the setting, and then, brothers and sisters, prepare yourself to discover the many ifs and thens and the multiple butterflies that were stepped on in order to take us to Genesis chapter 50. You've all heard the phrase, no ifs, ands, or buts, but this message is entitled, Ifs, Thens, and Butterflies. Ifs, Thens, and Butterflies. See, Genesis 39 is one of the most striking examples of the Lord's sovereignty in all of the Bible. In the story of Joseph, we see God molding and sculpting the mosaic of Israel's history and, more importantly, salvific history. 
In chapter 37, we saw Joseph, one of Jacob's 12 sons, being despised and hated by his brothers. We learn that Jacob clearly favored Joseph, taking him away from hard toiling in the field and making him, in effect, an overseer over the other brothers. We learn that Jacob made him a robe of many colors, probably signifying some sort of authority over the other brothers. And finally, we learn that Joseph had dreams. Dreams that indicated that one day he would rule over his brothers and his parents. This not only angered his already jealous brothers, it even incited Jacob to exclaim in verse 10, Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? So one day when his brothers went out to labor in the fields, Jacob sent Joseph to them to bring back a report about how things were going. They spotted his technicolor dream coat sparkling in the sun and they hatched a plan. Let's kill him and let's throw him in a pit. Now Reuben, the eldest brother, talks them out of killing him in order to look like the good guy to his father because he was already in, in trouble with his dad. But while Reuben's away, they decide to throw him in the pit anyway, to put animal blood on his robe, to sell him to the Midianites, and that was Judah's idea, by the way and to tell his father that he'd been killed by a wild animal. So the Midianites take him, his brothers bring word back to Jacob, devastating him, and Joseph and we are brought down to Egypt and sold to an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, a man named Potiphar. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you again in the name of your son, knowing that all truth comes from your son. And we ask, Lord, that as we discuss the life of, of Joseph and discuss your sovereignty, that you would teach us uh, about how we should live in this present age. Oh, Lord, with people sick and people um, uh, anxious about the future, I pray, Lord, that we will be grounded in the truth that you are in control of all things. And we ask, Lord, that you would enlighten us to your truth this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're at Genesis chapter 39, uh, please read along silently as I read aloud verses 1 to 6. And if you're still turning there, I want you to know that I'm going to divide this chapter into three parts. The first part is going to be called Potiphar's Pal, which is verses 1 to 6. Then number two, the adulteress's assault, verses 6 to 19. And then finally, the warden's ward, verses 20 to 23. So here's Genesis 39 verses 1 to 6. The text reads, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And, he, and his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. The Lord was with Joseph, it says in verse 2. So what exactly does that mean, the Lord was with Joseph? In order to get a clearer picture, let's do a brief survey of some other passages that use that term. In Judges verse 119, 
the text says, And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. In Judges 2.18, it says, Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. In 1 Samuel 3.19, it says, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. In 1 Samuel 18.12-14, we read, Saul was afraid because the Lord was with him, with David, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people, and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. Later in 2 Kings 18.7, we read, And the Lord was with him, Hezekiah, wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. First Chronicles 9.20 reads, And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, was the chief officer over them in time past. The Lord was with him. Second Chronicles 17.3 reads, The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. And finally, in Luke 5.17, we read, On one of those days, as he, Jesus, was teaching... Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. So we see that the Lord being with these people indicated that he was granting them success in whatever endeavors they were undertaking. Conquering Canaan, judging Israel, uttering prophecies in battle, returning from exile, in governing, and even in healing and in miracles. They were all fulfilling the will of the Lord. But if you were looking closely at what I was reading into the lives of these men, most, if not all of them, did experience trials and pain and hardship and setbacks, sickness, and even death. The first Old Testament passage I quoted, Judges 1.9, mentions that the people of Judah took possession of the hill country, but not the plain. I ask you, was the Lord with them? Surely he was. The text says so explicitly. So we see in the text and in life that the Lord can be with someone even when they experience failure. Why? Because at that point in time, for reasons only known to God, his will for his people was apparent failure. Now I say apparent because that event, no matter how difficult it may have been, was God's perfect will for that person at that particular time. And one only needs to view the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in order to understand that what appeared to be a colossal failure to the world was actually the most successful accomplishment possible for the world. The Lord was with Jesus, and he accomplished his Father's perfect will through trial, through pain, through hardship, and through death, even the death on the cross. So keep that in mind as we turn our attention back to Joseph this morning. So part one, as I said, verses one to six is under the heading Potiphar's pal. Potiphar's pal. So Joseph was bought by Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. But even so, the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a success. 
How? Well, verse 2 said that he was in the house of Potiphar. And that's important because he wasn't working in the field. He wasn't making bricks like his descendants will have one day have to make. There's no heavy yoke on Joseph's neck in Potiphar's house. So we ask the question, why? Well, because in verse 3, it says that Potiphar saw that Jehovah was with Joseph and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed. So apparently, Joseph did spend some time doing the backbreaking work of an Egyptian slave, and he did it well, and he excelled at it, and proved himself to be extremely useful. So he found favor in Potiphar's sight, and he was moved into the house to attend to Potiphar as sort of like a personal valet. And then he became an overseer of his entire house, including the other servants, and also of all of Potiphar's possessions and his finances as well. And because of Joseph and for Joseph's sake, God blessed Potiphar in house and field. In other words, he blessed Potiphar in everything. Verse 6 said, So he left all he had in Joseph's charge, and, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So get the picture. Joseph, at one time, he was favored by his father Jacob. Then he was sold into slavery. Now Joseph, as a slave, is favored by Potiphar. Why? Because the text said the Lord was with him. And this will further his, God's, perfect plan. And this plan will include what's going to happen next in the text. So look in your Bible. Verse 6 continues. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. That's not something I can personally relate to, but Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Nevertheless, this leads to the second part of our story. Because he was handsome in form and appearance, we come to verse 7, which is the adulteress's assault. Look in your Bibles. It says, verse 7, And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. Now, was this a temptation for Joseph? Possibly. I mean, if not physically, then perhaps opportunistically. In other words, giving in to Potiphar's wife may make his life even easier in the house. Maybe he wasn't allowed a wife as a slave. We know he wasn't married yet. So maybe this was a pragmatic solution. This opportunistic view is hinted at in Joseph's reply to her. But either way, let's see what Joseph says and what he does. Verses 8 and 9. But he, Joseph, refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything he has under my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. In other words, ma'am, I control everything that goes on here. I'm in charge of it all. Everything Potiphar has is also mine. I have as much authority in this place as he does. I can play with all of his toys. I can use his master bathroom. I can even sit in his favorite chair. All that he has in my is mine, all except you, because you are his wife. So being with her will not improve his life one bit. It will only destroy it, like all sin does. It promises happiness, but we know from experience that it delivers only pain. But he doesn't stop there. At the end of verse 9, Joseph rightly adds this. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Amen and amen. You know, Joseph gets it. 
He's far from home. He's in the middle of a foreign land. He's away from his family. He's away from Israel. He's away from his father. But Joseph gets it. He gets that all sin is first and foremost sin against the Lord. David writes in Psalm 51, 3 to 4, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. Now we know the story. David sinned against a whole load of people, against Uriah, against Bathsheba, against Joab, against the nation of Israel, against the son Bathsheba is going to bear to him that later dies. But David realized that most importantly, his sin was against his God. See, jo Joseph knew this generations before David knew this. All sin is vertical as well as horizontal. It's always against God first and foremost. So whether or not Joseph was actually tempted, we do not know. But we do know that he took appropriate steps in the future to avoid it. We see in verse 10 that Potiphar's wife didn't stop propositioning him. Look at the text. It says, And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Notice, he wouldn't listen to her, and he would not get close to her. Here are two practical steps to avoid sin. Number one, close your eyes and ears to sin, and number two, stay away from sin. Joseph, by God's grace, remains steadfast. Look at verses 11 and 12. The text says, But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men in the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Okay, this physical assault, I mean, this grabbing Joseph by his garment was a satanic attack. It really was. It was not an eternal temptation. It wasn't his heart bowing to sin. But this was a frantic last-dish attempt by the devil to cause him to sin. I really have no doubt in my mind about that. He was doing the right thing, and then she lashed out and grabbed him. This shameless example by Potiphar's wife of unrestrained lust of the flesh indicates that Joseph may have fled before at the enticements. He may have been so quick to get out when she started to speak that she felt that she had no choice but to grab onto his clothes. And so she did. But he slipped out of whatever it was she grabbed him and ran out of the house. And he did the right thing. Amen? He fled from the temptation. So let's pick up the story in verse 13. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew who to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Unbelievable. She lied about the entire thing. And notice she also blamed Potiphar for bringing Joseph in the house in the first place. And notice she doesn't even show either of the men respect. She, she doesn't use their name. She says, look, the Hebrew, the Hebrew in the house. And then she calls him the Hebrew servant or the Hebrew slave. 
This is the second time a piece of Joseph's clothes was used to spread lies about him. Remember, his brothers uh, put blood on it in order to, to, to lie about his death. And now Potiphar's wife uses the, the, his shirt to accuse him of attempted rape. Maybe a case could be made in the first place that he egged his brothers on by always bringing bad reports about them. But this time we know for a fact that 100% Joseph was blameless in this instance and did the right thing. He didn't deserve this. Surely the Lord was with him and would not allow this terrible lie to stand. Amen? Surely the Lord would not allow a second betrayal in Joseph's life. Surely the Lord would show Joseph's innocence and keep him from further trial. Right? Verses 19 and 20. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. So here we go again. Joseph did the right thing. Amen? This just doesn't seem fair. Now, even though most of you, I would say all of you, know where the story is going and know where Joseph will eventually wind up many years from, there, from now, please don't lose sight of the fact that Joseph is a real flesh and blood man. In Genesis 39, 20, he's falsely imprisoned in an Egyptian prison. He doesn't know what he's going to say later in Genesis 50, 20. We know what he's going to say, but now he doesn't. He's suffering right now. In his mind, I was betrayed by my brothers. I was sold as a slave. But just as things started to look up, just as I'm promoted, just as I'm, I'm making a good living, just as I have authority, just as I'm not suffering, I'm faced with a temptation, and guess what? I do the right thing. I resist. And as a reward, now I'm in chains. Where is the Lord? Look at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph when he was favored by Jacob back in Canaan. The Lord was with Joseph when he was thrown in the pit in Dothan. The Lord was with Joseph in the Ishmaelite slave caravan. The Lord was with Joseph in the hard labor in Potiphar's fields. The Lord was with Joseph in the promotion that he got in Potiphar's house. And the Lord was with Joseph in the temptation and the false accusation by Potiphar's wife. And finally, the Lord was with Joseph in the king's prison. The Lord was with Joseph. And that leads us to the final part of Genesis 39, verses 20 to 23, the warden's ward, the warden's ward. Now, before we look at the final verses of Genesis 39, I need to mention that just the fact that Joseph wasn't executed for attempted rape was evidence of God's favor upon him. Under most accounts, the death penalty would have been prescribed for punishment for rape in the ancient world. But Joseph winds up in chains, which in some way is better than death, obviously, in every way. As a side note, commentators speculate that Potiphar may have been the executioner for Pharaoh. 
the man responsible for carrying out capital punishment. And that's pretty ironic. And we can't know for sure, but you know, commentators will comment, commentate. Some say that Potiphar may not have completely believed his wife, sparing Joseph's life, but who knows? But what we do know is this, that Joseph is now in prison, and he's in the king's prison, and this is very important. He's not in any old prison. He's in the prison that the king's prisoners were kept, which is exactly where he needs to be in order for what's going to happen to occur. And he's in prison, and as we said before, the Lord is there with him. Once again, the Lord gives Joseph favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison, the warden. And in time, we don't know how long it took, things start to turn around for Joseph again. Look in verses 22 and 23 in the text. It says, the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. You ever hear the expression, you can't keep a good man down? Well, in this case, it's true. But it's even more accurate to use King Nebuchadnezzar's quote, the king of Babylon, when he says in Daniel 4.35, he, God, does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God's will was that Joseph go to prison. That's it. It was his will that he go to prison. And that in that prison, he would be promoted. He would be put in charge of the other prisoners. He was kind of like a prison overseer. Again, probably keeping him from the more hard labor that prisoners would probably have to perform. Now, the prison would, wouldn't still be a pleasant place. I mean, later on in Genesis, in chapter 41, it calls the prison the pit. So it's not a luxury hotel. But we do know that Joseph essentially ended up working at the prison. As in, he had authority there, as he had authority in Potiphar's house, and I suppose how he had authority back home in Canaan. So this sets the stage for what happens next with Joseph in the king's prison. We know who he meets there, right? He meets the chief baker and the chief cupbearer to Pharaoh. Now, we don't have time this morning to hash this out, but we know that they both have dreams, and Joseph interprets their dreams for them. And after being initially forgotten by the cupbearer and left in prison for two more years, he is brought to Pharaoh to interpret his dream. And remember Pharaoh's dream? It was the one about the coming famine. He advises the king to store up uh, the grain while it was still in abundance because a famine was coming. And he gave him advice and told him what to do. And he said that if you store it up now, there'll be enough for us to withstand the years of famine. And so what happens? Pharaoh places Joseph in charge of the effort to save the grain and of the operation to dispense it to, to the people that come for it. Because the Lord was with Jacob, uh, Joseph. Now, I want to revisit what I said at the outset. Genesis 39 and the whole story of Joseph, which will last until the end of Genesis, is one of the most striking examples of God's sovereignty in all the Bible. Joseph, back in 37, was in Canaan. We knew that. He needed to get to Egypt. Why? In order to provide food for his family during the seven-year famine that was going to come in a number of years. Ifs, thens, and butterflies 
follow me. If Joseph's brothers didn't sell him, then he wouldn't have had met Potiphar's wife. If he had never met Potiphar's wife, then he wouldn't have been thrown in the king's prison. If he was never thrown in the king's prison, then he wouldn't have met the cupbearer. And if he never met the cupbearer, then he would never have met Pharaoh. And if he had never met Pharaoh, he would never have been put in charge of Egypt's storehouses. But this isn't random chance. It's not coincidence. There was a sovereign hand behind all of this ordaining whatever came to pass. Amen? God met Joseph's brother's sin in selling him in order to take him to Egypt. And God met Potiphar's wife's sin in putting him in the king's prison in order to have him meet the baker and cupbearer. And God meant for him to be ready and able to meet Pharaoh in order to interpret his dream. And God meant all the promotions, Potiphar's house, the king's prison, Pharaoh's court. And God meant this in order for Joseph to be trained up and equipped to see Egypt and Israel safely through the famine. And by preserving Israel, and specifically Judah, the one whose idea it was to sell him in the first place, we have David and we have Christ. It had to happen. If he's not there to interpret the dream, they would not have known that the famine was coming. And not only Egypt would not have survived, the small, small family of Jacob would not have survived. We never would have had David, and then we never would have had Jesus Christ because all of the Bible is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Every word. And we know that God does things for a reason. And this is how he saw to it that Jesus would be born. And so Jesus is the one, not Joseph, not David, who came to earth at the appointed time. And he came and lived a perfect life, the one that we could never live. Even Joseph. And he looks just short of perfect, even though we know he's not in what's written about him. But even he could not have saved himself. Jesus Christ was Joseph's Savior. And so today, if you're hearing what I'm saying and you think it's interesting that time travel stuff or the fact that God uses means to accomplish his will or maybe you're concerned about your health or whatever reason, you're thinking, yes, maybe there is a God that is in control of all things. Please don't leave here this morning without hearing the most important thing I'm going to say. It was God's will to crush his son on behalf of sinners. So he, at the appointed time, he sent his son to earth, born of the Virgin Mary, who lived a sinless life, who lived a life that was not deserving of sickness or death, yet he encountered death on behalf of sinners. He was betrayed. He was falsely accused. He had a false trial. He was wrongly convicted, and he went to the cross. And on the cross, he not only suffered the pain that goes with dying from the crucifixion, he endured God's sovereign wrath in place of sinners. So if today you have a prick in your heart and you're concerned about that, please run to Jesus for salvation. He will never cast anyone away who runs to him for salvation. Go to him in faith, believing that he saved you from your sins, knowing that you could do nothing. Even if you made all the right decisions like Joseph did, it's not enough. Only Christ was perfect. So believe in him this morning and you will have eternal life and trust in him. So wrapping this up this morning, the Lord was with Joseph. In the story of Joseph, we see God's molding and sculpting the mosaic of Israel's history. 
as I've just indicated, it extends to salvific history. So in conclusion, before I give my two brief points of application, I want you to consider the phrase, the Lord was with Joseph. And I want you to equate the Lord being with someone as success. Not as in riches or wealth or fame. Success doesn't often equal a pain-free life. The story of Joseph alone makes that fact abundantly clear. Even in slavery, even in prison, even in trial, even in tribulation, God was with Joseph. God was ordering all events, and he does that today. He orders all events. He is directing history. He's leading his people, and he is with his people. Note what Revelation 6, 9 to 11 has to say about the Lord's providential hand in the suffering and death of his saints. It says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Oh my. Look at the answer he gives them. And to all those, your brothers, my people are going to be killed. You have to wait a little longer. God has ordered all things, even the death of his people. And his death is precious, and their death is precious in his sight, it says in Psalm 116.15. The Lord is with his people in peaks and in valleys, in light and in darkness, in sickness and in health, even during a pandemic. When we're favored and promoted, the Lord is with us. If we're sold into slavery, the Lord is with us. When we're favored and, and promoted, the Lord is with us. When we're falsely accused, the Lord is with us. When we're thrown in jail, the Lord is with us. When we're favored and promoted in jail, the Lord is with us. When we're martyred for Christ, the Lord is with us. So it's easy to see Joseph's story as just a means to an end, right? Just another butterfly to be stepped on. Joseph goes to Egypt and he saves Israel from the famine, but that's all, if that's all we take away from it, we're missing the point. There are practical applications that we can make right now from this. Number one, acknowledge and apply God's sovereignty and complete control over all your circumstances. And I admit this is not easy to do. Joseph really suffered in that pit. He really suffered on that cart when he was being taken away. He suffered in prison. Joseph probably didn't know the end results of his sufferings while he was experiencing them. But his statement to his brothers in Genesis 50:20 shows at the end he definitely knew. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see what he says? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God didn't see it and, oh, how can I fix it? God meant what they did for good. Why? So that many people would be kept alive as they are today. God meant Joseph, Joseph's brother's evil for good. Just like Paul says in Romans 8.28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. You see, Joseph's story and all biblical stories are written down for our account, 1 Corinthians 10.6. So we learn from them. So now we can be sure that God is working in our suffering. He's not surprised. He is in complete control. Now, this doesn't mean we can't ask him to remove the suffering. Moses did. 
Paul did. Even the Lord Jesus in Matthew 26, 39 said, if there's any other way, let it pass. But we need to pray as Jesus did when he closed his prayer, not my will be done, but yours, Father. So acknowledge and apply God's sovereignty and complete control over all your circumstances. And that leads us into our second and final point of application this morning. When we're suffering, let's ask the Lord, number one, what are you teaching me? What are you teaching me? Number two, what do I need to learn from this? What do I need to learn from this? Number three, what do I need to change, if anything? What do I need to change, if anything? Number four, what do I need to stop doing? And number five, what do I need to start doing? Maybe it's as simple as learning to practice patience or letting go of self-sufficiency. James 1 extols the benefits of trials, and Hebrews 12 tells us that God's discipline yields fruit. We see that like Joseph, our trials train us for life, ministry, and then ultimately for heaven. Even Jesus learned obedience through suffering. As it says in Hebrews 5.8, Although he, Jesus, was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. In Joseph's case, we know his hardship and experience. Managing Potiphar's house and the king's prison, trained and equipped him to manage Pharaoh's Egypt making business decisions and preparation for the impending famine. He was trained to do those things by what he suffered. And when we are tried, let's ask God for wisdom and for endurance. Now, we may not be used of God in such a major way as Joseph was, but that's okay. We all have our part to play, even though we don't know what that part is yet. So, seek godly counsel during trials. Seek his written word during tribulation. Seek him directly in prayer. And know that if you are his child, then he is definitely with you. Ifs, thens, and butterflies. Say with David, even though I walk through the valley of the shower of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod, your chastising rod, and your staff, they comfort me. Psalm 23, 4. And finally, brothers and sisters, remember the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 28, 20, where he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. May the Lord be with you this morning. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you in desperation, needing you. Lord, we know that you are with us, but at times it doesn't feel like you are, and I know that our feelings are not to be trusted. Lord, let us rely on your sure word. Let us know, based from what your scriptures say, that you are with your people and that you will grant us success, and that does not mean not being sick, and that does not mean not being poor, and that, that does not mean not suffering, but it means that you will guide us in the way that we should go. Lord, may we view things now as for your glory first and for our good second. Lord, may us trust that you do nothing that will hurt us that isn't for our own good. Please, Lord, teach us trust and faith this time. Once again, I lift up those that are sick in our midst that you would bring healing to them, that you would be with them, and that you would assure them that you are with them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.